This episode is brought to you by the proprietors of the Carolina Colony. Stop by our office on Birch Lane near the Royal Exchange in London. There over a cup of coffee, we can elaborate on the promise of the Carolinas, where the climate gives men strength, cures digestion problems, makes women fruitful and their children born with blushing complexions. We advise that any man bring with him just a few tools. An axe, a bill, a board hoe, grappling hoe, crosscut saw, whip saw, set of wedges, belt rings, reaping hooks, scythe, and all sorts of nails, hooks, hinges, bolts, and locks. For women, bring linen, wool, thread, sewing silk, buttons, ribbon, hats, socks, and shoes. With these basic supplies, one can settle your very own Carolina plantation. Head rights, lot claims, and tax rates, and all other details subject to change by the Carolina proprietors. Although this is very likely not the first attempt, it was the first well-documented investment into the Carolinas. So we will start in 1653, when Francis Yardley invested 300 pounds into a Carolina plantation, purchasing lands from the natives and experimenting with growing silk, olives, and wine. Yardley reported that the land is not only rich, but free of Virginia's nipping frosts. Though tobacco had proven profitable enough for Virginia and Maryland colonies, tobacco came with large, damaging, boom-and-bust economic cycles. Investors were still looking for lush, dependable cash crops. Everyone wanted to be the new Caribbean with their sugar crops. By 1656, Colonel Thomas Dew had explored the navigable rivers between Cape Hatteras and Cape Fear. By 1658, Virginia courts referenced the northerly and southerly portions of the new territory, which was at the time within the Virginia courts' governance, but not within their charter rights. In 1663, Governor Barclay appointed governors to oversee the region of the Carolinas. Shortly thereafter, it was agreed upon that new settlers in the Carolina would receive head rights similar to that in Virginia. Virginia still was in need of settlers and didn't want more competition on their southern border. Head rights would be given to those that settled within the River Carolina. The term river is confusing for us today because in our parlance we would say the Carolina River Basin and its estuaries. The River Carolina included the Raspitanic, the Pasquatank, Paiquamans, Paspatanic, and Curatic rivers, which were all known to English settlers via word of mouth from different natives that they had traded with. But these rivers had not been mapped or surveyed in any real way by the English. This ignorance of the region and rumors of investors looking to settle sites on the river basin created a rush of land surveyors to document the new territory. At this time in Whitehall, the crown was looking to create a more self-sufficient kingdom and therefore wanted more self-sufficient colonies. The crown saw the single commodity colonies as weaker and sent orders to Maryland and Virginia to show restraint from growing only tobacco and form policies of healthy readjustment within your colonies. In response, the colonies went about encouraging the growth of silk, flax, hemp, pitch, potash, and any other promising staple commodities. None of these policies had any large effect on what was grown in the colonies, but it did help mold the newest colony, which would become both a land for new settlers to grow tobacco, the time-tested commodity of the English Americas, and Whitehall's orders cleared the way for investors to send money in attempts to grow new experimental crops. 
One of these experiments was done by Sir Robert Moray, who experimented in growing mulberry trees for silk production, European cereals like barley, exotic staples like rice and coffee beans. As he experimented, he saw the southerly part, with its temperate climate and rich soils, was the best place for any potential new crops. In addition to Whitehall's interest in new crops, two other economic factors from the Caribbean helped the growth of the New Carolina colony. First was the economic reorganization that was happening in the English Caribbean, where large plantation holdings that could afford the initial investments were purchasing African slaves, and were doing so in large numbers. The new slave-based labor plantation model was putting small plantations out of business because they could not compete with the scale of production of these new plantations. Many of the small farmers of the Caribbean were too far in debt trying to compete with these plantations and could not pay their rents or property taxes and had to give their lands back. There was also no more lands on these small islands to pay any of the indentured servants. Additionally, both the poor ex-farmer and the ex-indentured servant could find little work in the Caribbean because the economy was becoming slave-based for its labor. So, many decided to pack up and leave to the cheapest, i.e. shortest, opportunity, which happened to be the new opportunities rumored in the Carolinas. The second reason was that the rich Caribbean plantation owners had maxed out their investment opportunities in the plantations in the Caribbean. All of the best lands had been used up, and they were looking for new opportunities to invest. And so the stories of lush lands spurred their investment into the new colony, and it was starting just a few hundred miles away in the Carolinas. Besides the investor and the immigrant that we just talked about, the Carolinas and the opportunities there caught the eye of the rich and powerful within the English political circles in London. The planning for the gifting of a royal charter was done in a cabal of powerful men in the English court. There was Sir John Callerton, a royalist soldier who received a knighthood after the Restoration. His exile was spent in Barbados as a planter. There was Sir William Barclay, governor of Virginia, who had spent years sponsoring exploratory efforts into the Carolinas and had just recently appointed a couple of governors to oversee the two settled counties in the northerly part of Carolina. Sir Anthony Cooper, soon to be Earl of Shaftesbury, he had previously owned a small plantation and trading venture in Barbados. These men laid out the groundwork for this project, selling it in court, which brought them the attention of even more powerful men. Lord John Barclay, brother of William Barclay in Virginia and member of the King's Department of State. Sir George Carteret, Vice Chamberlain of the Navy. William, Earl of Craven, an old soldier with title and money to invest. Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, the King's First Minister. And James, the Duke of York, who was the brother of the King and one of the most powerful members of the Privy Council. The records are unclear on how King Charles II felt about this charter, but with the weight of so many of his favorite men, it would be hard for him to oppose them all in their ask of patronage. This Carolina Charter's first problem was that powerful men have many demands on them. The Duke of York himself would immediately be pulled to deal with the Company of Royal Adventures in Africa, and when the Duke of York received the New Netherlands, he promptly deeded John Barclay and Sir George Carteret, New Jersey, taking both their attention from the Carolina Project. And the Hudson Bay Company's quest to find the Northwest Passage would distract most of these men from a simple colony. But they had set the Carolina colony in motion, 
the bureaucracy of the royal court, and the hunger of the English destitute would keep the momentum towards settlement in the Carolinas, with or without the powerful men who had started it. On March 24, 1663, the Carolina proprietors received the land between running westward to the southern sea. That is, from the 36th to the 31st parallels, the modern-day seaboard that runs from Virginia to Florida. The Crown had grown wiser about its charter grants. Carolina would be the first American charter with the Durham Clause, which stated that the proprietors would have the power to legislate with the great part of freemen or their representatives, and the law must be consistent within reason and as close to common English law as practicable. The proprietors also added clause to their charter for religious liberalism. That is, liberalism within the context of the time. They did this not out of some passion for religious liberalism, but out of a practical knowledge of the likely immigrants to the Carolinas. Since most of the English colonists already had a strong level of religious liberalism in the Americas, they knew if they wanted any immigration from the other English colonies, they must also offer religious liberalism. It was just simply good business. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.